You are listening to the Captain's Coach Podcast, where we provide top insights into sports leadership to inspire team captains to lead their teams more effectively and help coaches to systematically develop and use them. Now, here's your co-host, Luke Poulos. Welcome to the Captain's Coach Podcast, everyone. We have a great one lined up for you today. If you are a regular listener, you've probably heard me reference the Captain class numerous times. It's one of the main inspirations for the Captain's Coach and one of the books I most often recommend to friends and coworkers. I was lucky enough to sit down with the author of the Captain class, Sam Walker, earlier today and discuss his book and some of the surprising insights he has gained from it. As you will hear shortly, Sam spent years dedicated to researching and writing this book and had an extremely methodical way of coming to his conclusions. During the conversation, we talk about the importance of team captains and why most people miss that importance, why the mainstream image of a great captain and leader is far from reality, the faulty obsession with the personalities of leaders and the lack of focus on behavior, the three most important behaviors of captains, and his advice for captains and coaches who are trying to make fundamental changes to their programs. If you want to learn more about Sam and his work, his website is bysamwalker.com, and you can also follow him on Twitter at Sam Walkers with an S at the end of his name. And of course, go get yourself a copy of the Captain Class. Now sit back and enjoy the conversation and insights on another great episode of the Captain's Coach Podcast. Sam Walker, welcome to the Captain's Coach Podcast. How are you doing? Great, Luke. Thanks for having me. Now, thank you for coming on the show. Your book, The Captain Class, uh, is obviously a, a big inspiration. Anyone who's listened has probably heard me reference it uh, almost every episode so far. So it is great to finally have the, the voice of The Captain Class on the show for, for a little Thanks. bit of a conversation. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, I think a good place to start the conversation would be kind of just a, a general overview of The Captain Class, you know, what you were trying to answer and in, in going about writing the book and, and kind of what you, what you found um, at the conclusion. Sure. Well, I mean, the, the book started back in around 2004, 2005. That was when I kind of really started the, the research that ultimately led to it. And I wasn't planning to write a book. I mean, I, I was thinking I was going to write a column. I was a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. And you know, I wanted to finally get at something that I just never really understood and, and could not figure out, which was also something that I think is really one of the most important things that sports can teach everyone. And that is what makes a team great? What is it? You know, what is that magic element that needs to be there? What is, what is the difference between a team that you know, wins once, one title, you know, is pretty good versus a team that can sustain excellence for years and years and mm -hmm. build a culture. And I never understood it. You know, I, I covered sports for the journal and my job was really weird. I mean, I didn't have a, I didn't cover one sport or one team. I really covered everything. And I covered a lot of the major championships. So I spent a lot of time, you know, at the Super Bowl, World Series, Olympics, World Cup. I was always around teams that were at the height of their powers, you know, great teams. And I, I just couldn't figure out what it was about that particular team, any particular team. And 
you know, I would ask the athletes this question, you know, I'd say, why, you know, why is this team so much better than every other team? And what became really clear to me was that they didn't really given it a lot of thought. I mean, I think when you're on a great team, everything just seems to be functioning normally like it should, right? You know, and, yeah. and it, you don't really think about why it's happening. You know, it just feels normal. It's like, it's almost human nature. And, but then, you know, on the lousy teams that I would come across, especially the lousy teams that weren't supposed to be lousy, right? The ones yeah. that had tons of talent, um, the reaction was totally different. I mean, they, they were, you know, every lousy team is, is really stressful and difficult. They would, they would talk my ear off. You know, but all the reasons the team wasn't getting the job done, all the remedies that failed, <clears throat> and they would go on and on. And, you know, that was really strange. I didn't understand how um, a great team could be simple. And that's what Tom Brady said when, when I asked him this question. He said this a lot. You do your job so that everybody else can do their job. There's no big secret to it. Right. Which sounds crazy because that team that he's on is one of the great dynasties in history. And mm -hmm. But the idea that it could somehow be simple just, just seems weird. So that's where I started. I said, look, let's just find the best teams in sports history. You know, I'll, I'll come up with a list and then I'll start looking at them and see if, what they had in common. Maybe there's a simple answer. Maybe it's something that we're missing. And this turned into a giant rabbit hole. You know, the, <laughs> just identifying who those teams were. You know, it took years because no one had ever done it really. No one had ever said, I'm going to do an objective list of the greatest teams in sports history. So I kind of realized I had to start. I had to start from the beginning. I couldn't just do one country, one sport. You know, I had to do every, every sport in history in the world. And so it was more than 25,000 teams, 37 categories of sports since the 1880s. And, you know, I, I came up with this massive list you know, every team that ever won anything. And started whittling that down and that was really years of work trying to figure out i mean you kind of have to define what a team is yeah exactly and you have to define what excellence is too so yeah. it was brutal i mean it just took years to figure out how to do it without letting your biases you know play a role so once i did that then i i said all right let's let's start looking at what they have in common and that was where the surprises started i mean i i just couldn't believe what i was finding it wasn't talent you know, some of these teams were incredible. Some weren't um, in terms of talent. Some, it wasn't tactics. You know, some were brilliant. Some weren't. You know, it wasn't money or resources or, or upper management. And it wasn't coaching, which is what I thought it really was going to be. But yeah. it wasn't. I mean, you know, coaches are, are important. You know, I think from doing this research, I think they're more important than I realize. But not in the way you think. It's not the coach's role to sustain that culture of of excellence for a long time they can help but it's really down to one person on the team because time and again every single team that i looked at not just the 17 that i consider the greatest ever but the next 123 or so teams down the list i mean mm -hmm. all of them had the same thing in common which is the streak began and ended you know that that time period corresponded very closely if not perfectly with the arrival and departure of one player and it was always the captain or the leader of the team. And I just was uncanny over and over again. You would see that, you know, this person's arrival and, and their, you know, their point at which they were named captain and their departure. I mean, that really overlapped with the winning. And that was, that was the one thing. And I saw it so many times. I kicked the tires in every possible way. I didn't really believe it. Mm -hmm. you no, know, I, I didn't think it could yeah. be that 
simple or leadership player leadership to play such a role. And, you know, but in the end, I, I, I have no doubt whatsoever. I mean, I see this over and over again in, in every different kind of sport and also in, you know, in, in business and in military groups and, and other, uh, other teams, the way there's, there's many ways to become great. You know, there's, there's a formula, you need talent, you need tactics, you need coaching, you need all those things, but there's only one way to sustain it for a long time. And if you want to sustain it for a long time, you need a certain kind of um, internal player leadership. And that's the key. I mean, there's no other way to do it. I've never seen, um, you know, any, any team that was able to do it without that model. I think it's the only way forward. So right. there I had that, you know, once I kind of saw that, then, you know, the next phase of the book was, you know, another just period of years and years and traveling all over the world and, you know, meeting these captains and their teammates and doing this research and trying to figure out what it was about these people um, and how they led. And that was really the biggest surprise of all, which is they were very different people, um, different backgrounds, races, ethnicities, played different sports at different times in, in history. But when it came to leadership, they had the exact same approach, all of them. And, you know, it wasn't the approach that I thought, you know, the way they led was completely different from the way I'd been conditioned to see it. And, you know, that's when I kind of realized, wow, this is really something like I never saw coming that I don't think is really understood um, in general. And, you know, that's when it really became kind of a, a, a mission, you know, to write this book in a way that people would be able to engage with it. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's the, that's sort of long and short of it. And ever since it came out, I mean, it's kind of become my full-time gig. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. you know, trying to figure out not just, um, not just talking about the theory behind it, but also the practice and also trying to figure out how you, if we know what the model is, how do you implement it and how do you right. go about building a team with that culture? Right. And, and anyone who has read the book knows how methodical you were in, in defining all those terms. What is excellence? What is, what is a, great team or dynasty and you even even started with you know what what is actually a team sport and then from there the the level of detail that you went through to write the book is just it's it's phenomenal in and of itself quite quite the task you, you took upon yourself there um and then yeah the the answer that you you found was one that i think generally surprises most people uh that you that you have conversations with is that it's not the coaching, it's not the talent or the resources, which like you said, I, I was in the same boat um, pretty much up until I, I read your book, um, that it's really just one person. One person makes all the difference and, and that the leadership experts out there that, that tell you uh, everything rises and falls with, with leadership, as John Maxwell says, is it's, it's true. It's not that they're just selling their own product. It, the, the science is in, the data is in, it, leadership is the one commonality that all of these teams had. And then on top of it, for those captains to have the same sort of characteristics and traits that you outline, and then for them to not generally be what you'd expect from a quote, great captain or a great leader is also surprising and shocking. But even with that knowledge out there, and, and I think people these days, it really is becoming a little bit of a, a paradigm shift in sports and, and people are realizing the importance of leadership. But why do you think maybe some of the people you run into or coaches in general and program people who run sport different sport programs aren't putting as much emphasis on it, even though they kind of know the, the importance of it? I think basically since, 
I mean, I think the period after World War II, I mean, I've really looked into this because I'm trying to figure out what happened, you know, mm -hmm. because I think that we, you know, in times when there was war and more people had experience in the military, I think some of these ideas about how leadership really works were more ingrained in us and, and we've sort of lost track of them. I think, um, I think there's, there's so many different factors, historical and, and practical. I mean, the historical ones, you know, we had this um, period, I think, when, when television became common, when, you know, we all saw people like Martin Luther King and, um, and John Kennedy. I mean, we got a little bit enamored of charisma and speeches. I mean, right. I think someone's presence became so important. So mm. you sort of think that must be a part of leadership. Um, you know, we also had this period, you know, in the 80s of this incredible economic expansion. And you know, back then there was this idea that, you know, leaders need to be brash and bold and colorful. Right. You know, that was, that was sort of the corporate climate, you know, and I think people got attached to that. And, you know, in sports, it's, you know, a lot of it, I think is, is economics. I mean, I think what's happened in for the last 30 years is just the influx of money and uh, in professional sports. I mean, it's really changed the culture of uh, of it, it, it dramatically. And I think what you have now, when you add the financial and commercial side of it, it's really, it really benefits coaches and stars. You right. Know, it's almost like these teams now are, are kind of a, a power struggle between the coach and the superstars. And those yeah. are the people who, you know, sell tickets. Those are the people who, you know, are most important to the, to the whole enterprise. So I think we got a little off kilter. You know, we started thinking that, that that's how you run a team. You know, it's a balance of coaching and, and your stars, and they kind of are generally the leaders. But some of this is just, I don't know. I just, I don't know if we've ever really understood this. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the problems with teams is I think, you know, everyone looks at a team and we all make this assumption. We think that the person who makes the biggest contribution to the outcome of the game is almost by default the leader. Right. You know, that someone's the size of your contribution and, and kind of puts leadership on you. And I think a lot of superstars think that too. They think, Hey, I'm, I'm the guy who, who, you know, kind of leads this team because I'm the person who's most important to the outcome. So right. even if they're not good leaders, you know, they feel that pressure and that guilt if they're not taking care of the leadership responsibilities. So, you know, we've gotten completely backwards, you know, and, and I'm as guilty as anyone. I mean, I, I you know, I think we, you know, I think I spent a lot of time worshiping what I discovered were false idols. Michael Jordan, you know, Michael right. Jordan, one of the greatest players ever, but not a good leader, you know, and not someone I would ever hold up as an example of great leadership. And, you know, name your sport. There's someone like him who I think we all, um, we understood their qualities as leadership when they really weren't. So we've gotten really mixed up, you know, and, and one of the things that's frightening to me is, you know, as participation in sports declines, kids are playing sports you know, every year, the numbers slide a little bit. Mm -hmm. And schools don't teach leadership. So, you know, leadership is something and being on a team is something that we've always kind of left to sports. Right. And, um, you know, sports has kind of lost its way and is shrinking. And, you know, I think we're seeing the effects everywhere when you look around the leadership landscape, whatever institution you're talking about, I think you know, I think most people agree that we're in a bit of a crisis situation. There just aren't that many great leaders out there. Um, but that's because we're not making them. And the reason we're not right. making them, we don't really understand what they actually do and, and what leaders are really like. And, and we haven't really spent time studying them. <clears throat> For me, the, um, 
the, the, the most interesting point about the book was, you know, as I talk to people, especially in sports, um, you know, I, I always ask them about their view of leadership and, and to name some people that they look to. And mm-hmm. it's human nature. You know what? We all look at the best team we know, you know, and the best team that we follow. And a lot of people say the Chicago Bulls, you know, and they'll say, I look at Jordan or yeah. I look at Manchester United and, you know, Roy Keane or mm-hmm. they'll, they'll, they'll always point it. But, but the thing is, no one had ever actually just said, okay, let's just really pluck out these freak teams that really were the greatest, you know, in history, you know, regardless of what we think are the greatest teams and, and look at them. No one had really done that. So, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of it is just, it's a lot of work to, to really be systematic and to really look at the elite teams instead of just the best team, you know, and, you know, I think we need to take a broader view. Yeah. And I think that was a big piece for me as well was that, like you said, that first step of just objectively sitting back and saying, okay, what are the really great teams? And then going from there, instead of just, like you said, assuming, um, you know, the Bulls are the best team that I know, and Michael Jordan was the best player. And because he had this, this presence and this character that people were familiar with, they just assumed and tagged the success of the team and Michael Jordan's style of leadership or lack of leadership, as it turns out. And people kind of just think that's what it is. And I think your point about the kind of the, the sale of sports and, and the, the attraction of the big star, the attraction of the coaching personality, I think has kind of pulled people's attention away from what actual leadership is. And, and presence is a big piece of leadership. It's just not the way that people would assume. It's, it's more of a lighter presence, a lighter touch on those around you than that that big voice in the locker room or the the big name and the and the face to go along with it and being brash like you said the bold big decisions um, that everyone assumes is great leadership and it turns out I think that was one of the biggest surprises for me reading your book was wow Michael Jordan actually was actually might have been a detriment to the rest of his teammates um, in terms of his leadership and it wasn't actually him who was the 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 biggest determiner of that that culture and was kind of holding them back until um, they started winning those championships so I think that was definitely interesting for me as well starting from that point Um, what are some of the best ways you've seen teams or any kind of organization actually go about the systematic development of leaders in their own in their own programs or their own organizations you know I haven't seen it's it's in its infancy Really, you know, and I think teams are finally figuring this out. Mm-hmm. I, the team that I spent the most time with over the last couple of years is the Chicago Bears. And um, I've worked with them, you know, in their front office and just talking about, you know, leadership qualities and trying to help their scouts you know, do a better job of, of evaluating character. But um, beyond that, I've also worked with Mitchell Trubisky, their quarterback, and, mm-hmm. you know, he's um, – he's a perfect example of what we're talking about because, you know, he, North Carolina, you know, the knock on him was he wasn't a raw rock guy. He wasn't yeah, vocal yeah. enough. Yeah. And he lost playing time for that, even though he's, you know, freakishly talented quarterback. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, he's, he read the book and, and I think had the, the reaction that a lot of people have, which is the reaction I love, which is that's me. You know, this mm-hmm. is me. This is how I want to lead. These are my instincts, you know, about leadership and they're not what everyone tells you to do and so the bears you know the the thing that they understand and i think 
has been really helpful to them is is the concept of culture. And you know, people talk about culture a lot in in business too. And you know, they think, oh, put a ping pong table, you know, in the lobby. Yeah. Right. No, it's like a it's a different thing. And I think for years they've been trying to create a new culture around the team. And you know what they're doing really. I mean, this is really uncharted water. I mean, I've I've come across a few teams and and at the collegiate level, I think they're doing fascinating things, mm-hmm. trying to figure out the right mix of personalities. For example, on a championship team, and they've been doing this for a while, and they have really good ideas of of what you know what kind of personality types you need. The leadership isn't really about personality; it's more about behavior. Mm-hmm about what you do in that team context. And, you know, there's a right, the thing that my research showed, and I came up with these seven traits, which all these captains had, and, you know, they were surprising to me because it wasn't about talent or charisma or any other things we associate. It was really about the choices that you make in every second Mm -hmm. by the team context. And, you know, even if someone has the right instincts, they don't necessarily behave that way, which is a problem that, you know, teams have all levels. Um, so what we're trying to do now, I mean, you know, there are ways to, to, to be more systematic. I think if you identify the right characteristics and you start to bring people on your team that have them, um, you're going to be much more likely to, to get to the right sort of culture. So that's just job one is just stack your team with people who have the, mm-hmm. that too and understand that uh, the way leadership is really supposed to work. So that's one. Now, in terms of development, it's really hard. I mean, you know, I've worked a lot with, with Mitchell on this. And, you know, we're just kind of groping around trying to figure out how to do it. And, I mean, you know, we look at a lot of video, you know, great captains in different sports and how they handle situations. And mm-hmm. um, we talk a lot about the science behind communication and the science behind right. nonverbal communication and, um, you know, the science behind aggression and relentless play and emotional control. and how those things make a team better and how they actually translate on the field. So I'd say the second part of it is really working with those leaders because look, I mean, you know, no one shows up, even the great captains I found, they didn't show up on day one and know how to be a captain. You know, yeah. it, was, it was a series of behaviors that through time they figured out where they were the best ones. And, you know, most people kind of find their way to the right formula, but, uh, but, you know, it's not everyone. I think with a little time, a little coaching and a little like uh, intense work with your leaders, I think that's another way to do it. So that's something we've been trying to do, um, you know, in the last couple of years. Uh, but, you know, really so much of this is down to the coach. You know, right. so much of this is the coach being able to, to take a different approach to looking for leadership. And, you know, we do pretty much everything wrong in this regard. Coaches you know, they look for that person who's the loudest person in the room. And one of the shocking things about these captains that I found was none of them liked giving speeches. Mm-hmm. You know, and some of them didn't. Carlos Puyol, the Barcelona captain, you know, I asked him if, you know, he gave speeches. He said, I've never done it. I said, what do you mean you've never done it? He said, I've never addressed the entire team. Wow. Well, never done it. He's like, I wouldn't, he's like, I don't think I'm good at it. I don't really think it's important and I don't think it works. So, all of these things you look for as a coach, you know, in your, in your player, you look for talent, you look for that charisma and that loud voice. And, you know, those things are fine. And I don't think they hurt, but they're not, they're not important. They're not the things that really bind a team together. So coaches have to do a much better job of, of not just 
what they're looking for in, in potential leaders, but when they're looking. Because, you know, there's a, there's a tendency in sports, in everything, really, you went to look at the, the big triumph, you know, the huge win, you know, the, the signature win, you know, the, and to look at that moment and say, okay, let's look at our leadership. This person did that. That's amazing. This person, so that's when you decide who your leaders are in triumph, you know, but that's yeah. not. That's not when you, when you see it, you know, when things are going well, like leadership is not as important. I mean, it's, yeah, it's easy. part of the thing. It's just, it's when things go bad and it's not just when things go bad. It's when you, when you survive, it's, it's in those, those games, those, those moments where you, you probably should have lost, but didn't, you know, it's, and you pulled through, you know, you may not have, you know, got the outcome you wanted, you know, but you, those are the moments where you're really going to see, leadership because that's when the people who really care more about the team than they care about themselves that's when they're going to jump in and they're going to start getting to work to make sure that that terrible outcome doesn't happen you know and that's what coaches need to do is look at those moments not the not the big win but but the the game that you shouldn't have lost but almost did and and really break down why you didn't and who did what and who stepped in to save you because those are those are your leaders yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point about when coaches look and try to identify the the leaders on their teams. Like you said, they they kind of go to the team's greatest moments and try to attribute those moments to one or two or three individuals on the team and say, "Oh, look, they they did X, Y, and Z," like you said, and that that's why we had this great outcome. And the point about looking at a different time when you were on the brink of defeat or you know you went through a tough stretch of a season or uh, some sort of adversity that your your team or program went through and, and seeing who kind of stuck true to their virtue was constant and consistent in their behavior toward their teammates and uh, one of my previous guests uh, Morgan Wooten uh, legendary DeMatha Catholic high school basketball coach for years and years second most winning basketball coach in history period he, he had a really simple thing of, about how he interacted and identified his leaders was first off, they'd have to be someone of high character and, and have good behavior and be a good person in general. And then I would look at when, you know, things weren't going great for them on an individual level or weren't going great for us as a program and making sure the people I was identifying were the type of people who acted consistently throughout those times of adversity. And those continue to serve him well and serve that team well and it's interesting that once coaches see that or realize that that their complete picture and framework of leadership would change and like you said I think it definitely is a, a new shift in sports and is something that's just now catching on um, and I know you mentioned your, your seven traits from them if you had to pick two or three of those seven um, that you kind of would have to separate or maybe put on a higher level, what would those two or three traits be that could really transform a culture and, and kind of continue to have excellence throughout um, a, a career? Yeah, it's so hard because so many um, sports are also different, you know, right. and you require different things. And so I think, you know, in a basketball team versus a volleyball team versus a, you know, football team you're going to see different um things that come to the fore yeah. really there's three categories of things that that are important i think the first is 
that we need to think about contagious behavior, you know, and, and there's a lot of different kinds of contagious behavior, but there's only a few kinds of contagious behavior that always help your team. Mm -hmm. And that's what leaders have to understand that those behaviors have to be part of their, uh, part of their work. And the, the three things I think are always contagious in a positive way are relentlessness, just a, a, an incredible doggedness on the field. And, you know, these great captains did not, change i mean they, they had one speed in competition it was just flat out didn't matter if they were winning by a lot down by a lot they had put in the same level of intensity and that relentlessness is contagious it rubs off on other people and if they see their leader giving 100 percent, then they're going to raise their own effort and over time right. there's a huge benefit to that so there's that there's also toughness you know toughness and commitment playing through injuries playing through um difficulties showing toughness whenever you can is crucial because again, that's contagious too. You know, the next time someone tweaks their ankle, you know, they're going to remember what you did. And if you've mm -hmm. got something out, I mean, over time, that makes a big difference. So that's another thing. The other thing is emotional control, which I think is one of the, it's probably one of the most important of the factors because I think it, it, it is, is relevant everywhere. I mean, it's, it's, they're all, these things are all relevant inside any kind of team, but I think, Emotional control is probably the most universal. It's not something we think about a lot as leaders. You know, so many of these, um, these captains were incredible motivators, very passionate on the field. Right. But if you watch them closely, uh, they had this incredible ability to shut off their emotions at the, at the minute that it was not helpful. Right. To, you know, I mean, we see a lot of players that play with passion and sometimes they, you know, they make fouls, they get, they get penalties, they hurt their teams, right? Because of that unbridled kind of play. These captains would never do that. They had the ability to shut off negative emotions. And that includes, you know, awful things that are happening in their lives that could be very distracting. Mm -hmm. Over and over, I mean, I saw this with Tom Brady um, the season after deflate game when his mother was undergoing chemotherapy and he didn't say anything, he didn't tell anyone about it. You know, and it was his ability to focus and not just focus, but to hyper-focus. Mm -hmm play even better than ever is really important. So those contagious behaviors, I think people need to, to consider. I mean, the other part of it too, you know, is really about your approach to communication. And that is one of the things that just surprised me so much. I mean, the idea that, that big speeches don't matter. I just was went against everything that I, you know, knew and everything I had done, you know, as a manager myself. And, um, but, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It, it's really the communication style is, is so important. And you can give speeches if you want, fine. But the way that you really reach people is different. And the way you reach people is through its one-on-one -on -one communication. It is constant, you know, constant communication in the moment with your teammates, in competition, out of competition. you got to be looking for someone who needs encouragement, someone who needs advice, someone who needs a talking to. And you've got to deliver those critiques in the moment, but you've got to listen. Like so you can't just lecture and yell at people. You have to listen to them. You have to have a very engaged and sincere conversation about what's happening. One-on-one, mm -hmm. -on -one, not in front of the group. You know, you don't want to hurt anyone or, or make it personal. You, you want to have these conversations. And what that does is create a culture that's very talkative, you know, where everyone feels like they have to be accountable but they're also going to be heard. And that's very powerful because teams like that are able to deal with those festering problems. You know, those things that everyone knows is a problem and no one wants to deal with. Those get dealt with right away and they don't hurt the team over the long term. So 
communication is uh, is is totally underrated, I think. And yeah. then I think the, uh, the the carrying water really is the third one. I mean, I think it plays into so many things. It's it's this ability to do whatever needs to be done and to not worry about your own personal performance, how you're perceived, whether you're getting the credit. None of these captains cared about the credit. They, they, in fact, they were uncomfortable in the spotlight. A lot of them, they didn't want accolades and they would do whatever needed to be done. Even if they had star level talent, they would do the thankless jobs in the shadows if they had to um, and let the superstars be the superstars and do what they do. But you have to do anything that is necessary, any burning building, you got to run into it. You know, you have to, to do that. And I think if you take this, this sort of servant mentality, what people don't understand is that gives you enormous credibility with your teammates. Mm -hmm. because you know that you care more about the team and you'll do whatever is necessary right. you know, to help it, even if it's something that seems beneath the captain of the team. Um, they'll listen to you and they will follow you because that is an enormous relief to everyone to know that someone's got their back. So you know, that, that includes standing apart. It includes speaking up when something everybody else wants is not working, you know, and being willing to, to stand alone and to, to speak up against your coaches and against your teammates. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a selfless um, quality where you have to put your ego aside and really think about what's best for the team in every situation. Yeah, and I think that's uh, all three of those, you know, kind of the – the contagious behavior, the communication, um, and, and that selfless leadership are at the core of, of what being a team captain is all about. And that's why two of the, the six tenets of leadership we have at the captain's coach are one of them is leadership is a form of expression. Um, and that it's not just how you express yourself, but also how you receive. And I think that's, as far as communication is severely underrated, uh, I would agree with you. Um, even when it is talked about, I think there's not enough um, emphasis put on reception on the communication piece. You know, everyone wants to talk about as a leader, how you express yourself, how you put out your message, how you talk and interact with your teammates and those around you, but not enough is kind of emphasized on how you receive feedback from your coach or how you, listen to a teammate express their their issues and i think um you know one of my favorite basketball players of all time is, is tim duncan and i loved that he was highlighted in your book and his way of communication i don't think anyone who watches basketball or knows anything about tim duncan expects him to make any kind of crazy speech in front of anybody he's no. the most uncomfortable people i've ever seen on tv and the way that you describe his communication during timeouts and breaks and TV timeouts, um, just how he would, you know, very gently go up to one of his teammates, you know, whisper something in his ear or not even say anything expressly, just kind of, you know, give someone a head nod, you know, a slap on the back, um, a, a simple high five, like just the simple forms of communication, just so overlooked. Um, and I, I love the, the piece about emotional control because I, I've recently got into um, reading a lot about stoicism and, and learning about stoic philosophy and how they kind of can stoics put their emotions in check. Um, and that's such a big piece, you know, these outbursts you see from people, I was just watching uh, Kevin Durant, you know, all the ejections he's gotten lately. It kind of just, it baffles me a little bit that, you know, someone who's supposed to be an example for their team and not just him for, for anybody who, who kind of lets their emotions get the best of them 
just how much it affects their teams they don't understand or even if they do understand how much it affects their team there's not as much effort as you would think would be put into keeping your emotions in check and it's obviously a cliche to, to say that you know keep your emotions in check but it really has such a, a, a profound effect on the rest of your teammates and those around you it's true i mean it's such an important thing it's and it's it's an easy thing to monitor. I think it's one of the easier things to, to think about when you're in a team context. It's just, you know, all of our great leaders in history. I mean, I, I did a piece for the journal about George Washington and, you know, George Washington's two great qualities were relentlessness and emotional control, mm -hmm. composure. And that is, um, you know, they never should have won that war. I mean, they, they didn't win it. They weren't even trying to win it. They were just trying to get it going long enough so the, the British would give up. And that's, yeah. yeah. It did, but I mean, you know, that's so important. It's, it's, it's really about, you know, the, the funny thing and the hardest thing I think for anyone to realize is that you, it has to be enough to win. You know, you, you really has to be enough. I mean, it has to be everything. You, you can't mm -hmm. think about the credit and, you know, uh, having, you know, whether you have uncomfortable moments with teammates you know, it's not supposed to be easy. It's not supposed to be um, to reflect greatly on you. You know, if you're a great leader, you have to put all of that aside and say, if we won, you know, that's got to be enough. You know, it's, it's not we won and I was the MVP. We won, yeah. you know, and I was, you know, got my picture in the paper. You know, it's, it can't be that. It's got to be we won, period. And whatever else happens after that, even if no one notices your contributions, that has to be enough. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's telling that, you know, not many people have heard about these teams that you kind of highlight, or especially the leadership behind it, because it's for that exact reason, because none of these people were actively searching for the headlines and searching to be the big name and looking for their own personal glory outside of what the team was accomplishing. And it's exactly, as soon as you realize it, it's like, oh, well, duh, I've never heard of these people because they have these great leadership traits. Um, and that kind of goes in hand with the, the second piece that we, we were just talking about is the service piece. And that's another one of the tenants at the captain's coach is that leadership is a service and it's not, you're not doing it for yourself. And sometimes I think, especially in high school and college sports, it, being a captain, you know, sometimes people do it for their own benefit, you know, cause it looks good on a resume or, you know, they think it's going to give them some sort of edge over their teammates or they think it'll give them more power. But to remember that leadership has nothing to do with your own gain. You are doing it for everyone else around you. You are doing it for the benefit of those around you. And I think that is a, a the prime trait is that carrying the water cooler. Um, I, I loved that exact part of your book for that exact reason, because so many people forget that leadership isn't about you. Leadership is about those who are following you because as one of my previous guests brought up uh, recently, if you are a leader without any followers, you're not leading, you're just walking. Um, so I thought that was a, a, like a great uh, reminder to, to always have your, your teammates and, and your, your, the rest of your program at the forefront of your mind when you're making any sort of decisions and you're just everyday behavior. Yeah, no, it's, it's so important. It's not, Leadership is not because I am. It's not because I'm great, because I'm charismatic, because it's because I do. You know, it's because you, you are willing and committed to do the things that have mm -hmm. to be done. And, and it doesn't matter what it is. And, 
I mean, the thing that's important to remember, I think, is that you can be a superstar and be a great leader. I mean, it's so rare. It's so hard. You know, there's very few people who have been able to do it. I, I had a few in my group. Tom Brady's mm-hmm. the obvious example of this. Um, you know, but even Tom Brady, of course, wasn't a, a, a huge prospect. I mean, he wasn't yeah, exactly rolled everyone over with his talent. But, you know, you can do both. It's just extremely hard and extremely rare. You know, and I think the thing to remember is, you know, if you're a superstar contributor on a team, you have to step back and do a self-analysis because the chances are you're probably not the best leader on the team and you probably don't have time, you know, and you shouldn't because, you know, to be, to play at the level that you play at, um, it takes work. You know, you need to be left alone to some extent. You can't be yeah. looking at every interaction that's happening and trying to clean up every little mess inside the team. You don't have time, you know, and frankly, you shouldn't have to worry about it. So, when you get someone in there who is not necessarily the star, who's clearly not out for themselves, who is doing everything in their power and noticing everything and dealing with the really difficult situations, that's so liberating. You know, it's so liberating to everybody, especially the superstars, because, you know, that guilt goes away. You don't worry that you have to be the leader. You, can, right. you know that it's going to get taken care of. So you can pitch in. You know, we can talk a lot because – in these great teams, the functions of leadership are not all performed by the captain. And that's a myth. There's no one who can do all of it. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone needs help. And, and they need people who are specialists who work on, they're the enforcer, they're the, the sheriff, they're the spark plug, they're the person who keeps everyone loose. I mean, you need people to play these roles and the captain can't do it all. So right. a superstar in this situation gets to say, okay, I know that nothing is going to get past this captain who is ultimately going to deal with everything that doesn't get dealt with so i can contribute as i can as i'm able in the leadership roles that i'm good at and you know everyone contributes and that just that just makes the win so much sweeter because everyone knows that they contributed not just on the field you know in terms of the chemistry of the team right and i think that's a a huge piece and that was one of my favorite stories from your book that i reference all the time is the the story about brazilian soccer and you realizing that Pele was never actually the captain of any of those teams. And when you asked one of the captains, you know, why, why was it that Pele was never actually a captain? And the response was, well, it's, it's uh, pretty much a full-time job being the greatest player in the world and being the superstar of Brazilian soccer. He doesn't have time to worry about all the things that a captain has to worry about. And I think that was just a great example of one of the greatest teams, one of the greatest players in the history of a sport realizing that he didn't have to be the captain and having so much taken off his plate and being able to just focus on his own game and the actual, his performance rather than having to worry about everyone else's performance on the team and letting the actual leader take care of those things. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, I, and Pelé was the one who told me this because I assumed he was the captain. I didn't, you know, no, I, I when I yeah. met him, I, I, he said, I didn't want to be the captain. There's no way it wouldn't have been a good idea. And, that's so foreign now to most teams. The idea that you wouldn't make your the player like that, the, the captain of the team, is just sort of mind-boggling. But, yeah, it's hard work being a star. You know, you, you have to be able to let other people do it. And, you know, I see this time and again. I mean, there's this tendency to, um, to equate talent with leadership ability. Yeah. 
they're and, not related. I mean, they, they, you can have both, but you don't need one to have the other. Yeah. They're not mutually exclusive, but uh, it's, it's definitely difficult. And I think that part of it, it goes back to that kind of just the, the, the sale of sport and selling tickets and, and the storylines. I think a lot of times star players, they can catch some heat for not being seen as a leader on the team and not being the captain or not always being the go-to guy on their teams. Kind of they, it, it can sometimes reflect poorly on them and they can take it as kind of a slight of, oh, you know, this is going to reflect poorly on my character if I'm not voted the captain and the best player on the team at the same time. And sometimes they might feel that guilt of not contributing more as a leader. And I, that was one of my questions for you was, you know, is it possible for the best player on the team to also be an effective leader? And I think your answer is right. Yes, it's possible, but it's extremely difficult. And I think the one of the best examples we have is Tom Brady and people like him don't come around every day. So if you are the best leader or the best performer on your team, the most skilled athlete, don't automatically assume that you have to take on all these other leadership roles and everything that comes with being a captain if you don't have that naturally inside of you yeah it's better if you don't right? i mean yeah. it's better for everyone it's better for you you know that's a lot of work and you know you're already at the top of your game you know you're already you know have this great future laid out in front of you why would you want to complicate it by having to you know to to add on another job that someone else could do you know better you know sue bird who is um you know the captain and she's captain u.s women's the national basketball team and, and the Seattle Storm WNBA, who is, it, it, I don't think there's any question that she's the greatest living, uh, currently active captain in sports. I mean, she's won at every single level she's been at, and mm -hmm. she's not the big scorer. She's not the, the, the big star of every team. Um, but she said something that I just summed it up perfectly to me. She said that as she became uh, a leader and figured out how to lead, people she realized that you have to be selfish to be a star right you know, there's some selfishness there because she said you know even if you're not on it even if you're not hot you got to take 20 shots mm -hmm. even when someone else might be open and you know in the ability to do that um is difficult when you're also trying to serve the team with your full soul you know it's really hard to do both those things you have to set yourself apart as a star sometimes you know, and do, you know, because even if you miss, you're the person who should be taking the shot, right. right? So you have to do that. And that is, that is, makes it very difficult to also lead in the way that leadership really needs to be done. Yeah. And I think that, like you said, it, there's definitely, you're creating a conflict of interest um, inherently by being the best player and also being a team captain. So as a coach and as a player, like if you can just inherently avoid creating a conflict with your best player internally, you're going to start off way better. There's no need to add anything else to their plate um, in terms of roles and responsibilities and then add that guilt of conflicting interest between being selfless and selfish at the same time. Thanks for listening to the Captain's Coach Podcast with Luke Poulos. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review on iTunes and check out our website at captainscoach.com. Join us next time for another edition of the Captain's Coach Podcast.